We are in our third week, this is our third week in John's Gospel. And we're taking like five or six weeks for this prologue because it's so rich. Have you guys noticed that there's a lot going on here right at the beginning of John's Gospel? There's a lot in these opening verses. Um, I'll tell you what, before we start talking about that, let's read them. How about that? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the life of all mankind. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. With his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So there is a, there's a lot going on here in this prologue. And we've, we've kind of touched on this over the last two weeks, but John's gospel starts in a totally unique way. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there's four gospels. Matthew and Luke both start with the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth. Mark starts with Jesus' baptism. But John starts with this, like, this almost 
poetic sounding, philosophical sounding, beautiful reflection on this deep, rich theology of, of who the Son of God is. Part of the reason for that is because John is, is writing in, in a totally different style, in a totally different perspective than the other three gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes they're called the synoptic gospels, because they're all very similar. They're the synoptic gospels. John is the Yohani gospel, Yohani John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of Jesus from the ground. They start with Jesus, the man. And then they begin to tell the story of Jesus, showing that he is the new David, he's the new Israel, he's the great prophet, the great priest, the great king that was to come. They start with Jesus, the man, and then they move into unveiling or hinting at or explicitly declaring his divinity. It's a perspective on Jesus from the ground. It starts with humanity and then looks up towards his divinity. John is, is the opposite. John is a gospel from the air. John starts with the big picture of who Jesus is. He starts with Jesus' divinity. And then as he tells the story, he moves into Jesus' humanity. Now, that's important because John's style there helps us understand why these first verses are so dense and so rich with theology, Christology. John wants us to understand at the very beginning of his gospel what it means that God became human in Jesus Christ. Before John even tells the story about Jesus, about how Jesus ministered in Galilee and in Judea. He wants the reader to know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And John draws out and hints at and alludes to and poetically reflects on these deep theological concepts about Jesus before he even tells the story. Now, that's on one hand, that explains why we're spending five or six weeks in John's prologue. But on the other hand, that tells us something. Remember John, not just what he writes, it's the way he writes it that conveys the message. John is telling us that in order to understand the gospel, in order to know Jesus, even in order to understand Jesus, the human being, of the rabbi, of the teacher in Israel, right at the foundation, we need to understand some basic truths about what it means that Jesus is God. Now, some of us came to Christ, we learned the gospel from the ground. We learned stories about Jesus' um, um, rabbinical ministry, stories about him and the disciples, Maybe some of us were introduced to Jesus as a good moral teacher. And as we got to know him, we came to know him as our Lord, as God in the flesh. And that's wonderful. But here in this time, let's take some time. That's what we're doing in this prologue. 
to meditate on, soak in, and try to wrap our minds, stretch our minds up to the idea that God became human. That's what we're doing here. So toward that end, what I want to do today is I want to show you one particular doctrine, one particular theological doctrine, something about God, about Jesus as God, that John shows us in this prologue, that according to John is absolutely essential for us in order to receive the gospel, to be Christians. But something that in our time and in our culture has been largely neglected and largely in our churches forgotten. What I want to show you in this prologue is what John teaches us is the doctrine of eternal generation. The eternal generation of the Son. Now, if you're taking notes, you might want to write that word down. Eternal generation. That's the vocabulary word. That's the classical Orthodox Christian doctrine that John is fleshing out in this prologue that we're going to learn today. You've already learned it, that we're going to reflect on today. Some of you will hear this and will go, oh yeah, I know all about this. Take this time to reflect on this truth. Some of you, what I'm about to show you, you have never heard and you've never learned. This will be your first time. But let me say here on the front end, we see in John, in this program, that the doctrine of eternal generation exists at the very core, the very foundation of what it means to believe in Jesus, to be a Christian. If it's true that it's not just what John says, but also how he says it that conveys the message in the book, and I believe it is and somebody can't really be a Christian and deny eternal generation. This is a huge deal. Okay. So hopefully I've convinced you of its importance. Now, what is it? What is eternal generation? The eternal generation of the soul. Well, when John starts off, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, last week we reflected on what it means that Jesus, or the Son, is the Word. Okay? Here, let's reflect on these words, with and was. In the beginning, in back in eternity, before time was even a thing, in eternity past, the Word, the Eternal Son, was with God. He was next to God. But at the same time, in the beginning and eternity past, the Word, the Eternal Son, was God. How can that be? How can the Son be with God, next to Him, but also be Him? Well, because of eternal generation. He says that, uh, where did it go? Eternal generation is what it means when, when it says here that John the Baptist was speaking, bearing testimony to the light. They cried out. He says, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me will surpass me because he was before me. 
John the Baptist is referring to, maybe he didn't use the same vocabulary words, but the concept of eternal generation. How can the son come after John, but also be before John? What does it mean that he has always been? Eternal generation is what it means when the apostle writes, we have seen the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. The one and only son who came from the father. Older translations say the only begotten came from the Father. Maybe you grew up hearing that language of begotten. And that, if you've ever had a King James Bible, uh, you know, the genealogies in the Old Testament often are written as, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so. That means it became the father of so-and-so. And that so-and-so begat so-and-so. Well, what John, John means when he says, we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only, or the only begotten Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's thinking about, he's telling us about eternal generation. Perhaps the clearest uh, picture of eternal generation that we get here in this prologue is when he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, or the only begotten Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. That's verse 18. That's eternal generation. The only begotten Son. He is God himself, but he's also, just like verse 1, right next to God. Uh, that, that line is in closest relationship with the Father. The, the Greek there, if it were to be translated, absolutely literally would say, um, the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the fold of the Father's garment. Right? Like, like, like my mask is right here in my front pocket. Right next to him. So when John speaks about Jesus, or the Word, or the Son, as being... One was God, but also next to him, as being begotten of God, as being from God. That's eternal generation. Let me, um, let me put it like this. When I was a kid, I, was, I think I was five or six. Now, this story I'm about to tell you, I remember little pieces of this, and I'll probably never forget it, but the Broader end of the story, I actually got from my mom because I've forgotten little pieces. My mom filled me in on the whole thing. So let me tell you the whole story as if I remembered it perfectly. When I was five or six years old, I remember our whole family was at the dinner table. I remember it was me. Next to me was my older brother, Joey. Then it was Corey and Sarah, my two sisters, and then my mom, and then my dad. My dad was right across from me. And I remember asking my dad, we're all there at the table. Remember, looking at my dad and saying, Dad, where do babies come from? Classic question, right? I said, Dad, where do babies come from? And I remember my brother just started giggling uncontrollably. He couldn't handle I didn't understand what was so funny. I found out later that when, when my mom told me the story, apparently my brother and my sisters had put me up to this. Uh, I really wasn't old enough to understand the technicalities of where babies came from. But I asked my dad, my brother, Joey, and my sister's Corey and Sarah, and they're giggling. 
And I remember this. I remember this. I remember my dad squirming in his seat and getting uncomfortable. And I think I remember him clearing his throat. <clears> throat> he says, well, son. And he gets out a napkin and a pen and drawing anatomical diagrams explains biologically, scientifically, where babies come from. To me and my giggling siblings right there at the table. And I remember my mom going, Sam, oh, Sam, Sam's my dad's name. She's just, my dad was taking it very seriously. And when he got done with the whole presentation, he asked me, he said, Charlie, now do you understand? Now this part I don't remember my mom I, of course I didn't understand, because what I said was, I can't wait to tell Jeremy, because he said he came from Texas. <laughs> and apparently everybody left. I don't remember that part. My mom said that. Now, I, I tell you that story because I want you to, uh, but when we ask, what is eternal generation? It's kind of like little five or six-year-old kids asking, where do babies come there's a lot of theological technicality. We can go as, as explicit and as, as scientific and metaphysical and theological as you want to go. We can go all the way down to the deep end and explain it. But we can also explain it in a very simple way. You know, my dad could have just said, Charlie, babies come from their parents. And I would have said, because, oh, that's great. Jeremy said he's from Texas, and we all want to have a laugh, right? Now, eternal generation, we can go as deep and as theological as you want to go. Or we can say it very simply. Uh, babies, children, sons and daughters are generated from their parents. Now, eternal generation, what does it mean? Well, it means that for all time, for all eternity, the Son, the Word, has been with the Father, but also one with the Father. It means that they share the same essence. It means that they're always together. It means that there's one God, but within the one God, we have these, and we'll get to the Spirit later in the book, but we have Father and Son in the community of the Spirit. Yet they're not two gods. They're one God. And we can go on and on and on for hundreds of years about that. We can get out a napkin and draw diagrams. Or I could just tell you this. Eternal generation means that God the Son is generated from the Father. That's eternal generation. Now, Sometimes when eternal generation is talked about, this is, I've heard this many times. We're talking about these things. People go, oh, that's like deep end theology. That's for theologians, pastors, and people who, that's their hobby to get deep with theology. Not for us regular Christians who live here kind of in the shallow. I want to tell you something. Eternal generation, the truth that the Son is from the Father, that the Father generates is not deep in theology. It's concrete theology. It's the concrete at the bottom of the pool. It's at the bottom of the deep end, but it's also on the shallow end, and it holds everything up and holds everything together. 
right at the bedrock of what it means to be a Christian is to confess, is to believe in the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. Think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So, starting to wrap your mind around eternal generation, what it is, Eternal generation is what it means that the Son is generated from the Father. Now, let me show you a couple of things about eternal generation. First, is this only begotten, one and only Son business? Let's talk about that real quick. The language that John is using in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory and glory of the one and only Son, or the only begotten Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Okay, also John 3, 16. Also some other places in John and in 1 John. What is this one and only Son, only begotten? There's a linguistic thing I want to tell you about. Here it is. The Greek word there is monogenes. Monogenes. Generation, genes. Monogenes. Monogenes. Now, the first English Bibles appeared in the world. They were translated by this guy, John Wycliffe, which is, by the way, why one of the organizations we affiliate with is Wycliffe Bible Translators. The first English Bibles, John Wycliffe, appeared in early in the 13th, late in the 1300s, so 14th century. And from that time, all of the way until 1956, the Greek word monogenes was translated into English as only begotten or begotten. That's why many of us learn John 3.16, God gave his only begotten son. Right now, in 1956, uh, a new translation of the Bible came out called the Revised Standard Version, and it was based on some new cutting-edge scholarship and uh, cutting-edge Greek and Hebrew translation. And it's a great Bible translation. I love the RSV; it's wonderful. It's the foundation text for what became the ESV that many of us are familiar. With. When the RSV came out. There had been a significant amount of study on the word monogenes. And even though for four centuries it had been translated only begotten, they decided to change it to one and only. And starting with the RSV and moving all the way through the ESV, NIV, New Living, these translations that many of us read and are familiar with. We read in our Bibles, it doesn't say only begotten Son, it says one and only Son. Because there was all of this scholarship that showed that the primary definition of monogenes, from looking at Greek literature around the period that the Bible was written in Greek, the New Testament, so Koine Greek, all across Greek literature, like 99.9999999% of the time, from what we could tell, it looks like monogenes meant unique. So therefore, God sent his one and only son. 
when Bible translations changed. That's significant. Because many of us learned here, reading this, the glory of the one and only Son, the one and only Son who is himself God, uh, God sent his one and only Son into the world, his unique Son. We learned that from John, the apostle, reading our English Bibles, that what made Jesus the Son special was his uniqueness as a God-man. Now, monogenes does mean unique, and Jesus is unique. But this whole dropping 400 years of using the word begotten and focusing on uniqueness, let me tell you something, and I'm not the only person who says this. You can Google it. You can talk all day. Doing that was a mistake. And Christians, Bible readers, since 1956, have been only given part of what should be an essential foundational truth that we see in the text. What makes the Son special is not just his uniqueness. It's his begottenness, the fact that the Father begat him, that he is generated from the Father. Do you see it? Now, Charlie, why are you such an expert on Greek? Who are you to say that if it really means unique, it should be begotten in our text? Well, it's not just me. Uh, it's 1,956 years of church history, but also this. In recent scholarship, there's been a lot of digging, and something has been discovered that the translators of the RSV didn't know about, and it's this. Even though Koine Greek, first century Greek, the primary meaning is unique, you go all the way back to classical Greek. When the word monogenes came into form, do you know what it meant? It meant only child. And this vocabulary word, only child, started being used to describe any kind of uniqueness. But even in the first century, every single time within extra-biblical uh, Koine uh, Greek literature, every time the word monogenes unique, was used referring to family, kids. It had a biological connotation. Now, Charlie, why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this for this reason. Some of you have been taught that what makes the son special is his uniqueness. Some of you have been taught that speaking of his begottenness is a thing of the past, none of that is true. His uniqueness is wonderful. But what makes the son the son is the same thing that makes the father the father. And it's that the father generates, begets the son. Do you see it? This is so important. This is a reminder that we don't just want to read our English translation Bibles in a vacuum. But we need to read our Bibles textually. Now, that's great, Charlie. Um, by the way, this is also what we confess in the Nicene Creed when we say that the Son's begotten from the Father before all ages. That's the eternal generation. Now, let me tell you um, a couple things about how eternal generation works and why it's important, why it's essential to Christianity. 
First, let's go to the how. The Father generates the Son. The Son is generated by the Father. How does that work? Well, there's a couple of things about generation in God that are essentially different than generation in us human beings, than parents generating our kids. Here they are. First, if the Son is generated from the Father without initiation, there is no initiation. The Son is not generated by the Father's will. Not because the Father said one day, like we say, I think it's time to have a kid. No. He has always been generated by the Father. It's eternal generation. There is no beginning and there's no end. There was no time when the generation of the Son was initiated. He has always been and is always being and always will be generated from the Father. This means that the personhood of the Son is essential to God's identity. It's not something God decided to do. It's essential. In the fourth century, there was a teacher named Arius who started teaching the idea that there was a time when the sun was not. That at some point the sun came into existence. Today, the teachings of Arius continue uh, in Jehovah's Witness communities. Today, the teachings of Arius in some in a modified form, continue in communities even within Christianity that teach that the Son is subordinate or less than the Father in his being. The Son is not generated by the Father's will. No. He's generated from all eternity. Here's the second thing, and it's related. He's generated without beginning. There was never a time when he was not. This means, this means that there is no trajectory of growth or maturing in the sun. There is no part of God that's being actualized or that's growing. God never changes. He's fully God. Everything in God is God. So the Son is eternally generated without initiation, without beginning. And here's the last thing I mentioned a second ago. Both of these things together, we see that the Son is generated without hierarchy. In our families today, parents generate kids. And even though those kids have human life, the parents are human life, and human life is all equally valued, the parents still have a, they are over their kids. They're in charge of their kids. They're the boss of their kids. There's a hierarchy between parents and kids. And over time, the goal is that as the parents teach the kids, born to the kids, as the kids grow, eventually the kids at some point will leave the house, will start their own life apart from their parents. And at that point, in our culture, parents and kids become peers. They become equals. And then one day down the road, parents get old, and kids need to take care of their parents and make decisions for their parents. And at that point, Parents come from the authority with their kids. You see that? We have this arc of authority and submission in our familial relationships. And that's because of time. It's because of time. When you remove time, 
You remove decision and will and drop this into eternity. Remove maturity. Remove any sort of goals or actualization. And what we have between the Father and the Son is not a relationship of hierarchy and submission. No. It's a relationship of eternal equality. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or as it talks about in our Westminster Confession of Faith, they are equal in power and in glory. There is one substance of God. There is one essence. They share the same will. There can be no authority and submission if you share the same will. Total equality. Total unity in God. This is what it means when the Nicene Creed when we say that the Son was begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and made of the same essence as the Father. Eternal generation. The Son is not just unique. He's begotten. He's with God for all time. He is God. You see why this is important? Now let me tell you why this matters. Why does this matter? Why do everyday Christians, why do little kids, kids, you need to know this, that Jesus is the, the Son is with God, Jesus the Son, and He is God. Because there's no hierarchy between Him and the Father. Kids, why do you need to know this? Grown-ups, why do you need to know this? Professional theologians, why do you need to know this? Why does this matter? What does this have to do with the gospel? What does this have to do with my everyday life? Why is this such a big deal? Why does the Apostle John spend 18 verses reflecting on and fleshing out eternal generation? Here's why it matters. Because if the Son was not eternally generated from the Father, if he does not share essence and substance, equality, glory with the Father, if he does not exist in the fold of the Father's garment, but also is he himself God, if these things are not true, if the Son is somehow derivative from God, or subordinate to the Father, or less than the Father, or in some process of maturing, if he is not eternally generous than this, he could never save us from our sins. If the Son is not from the Father, if the Son is not with God, but also is God, then he could never bring us all the way to God. When the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, so that we would see his glory, so that we would believe. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ can only take us as far as he himself goes. He can only bring us as close to the Father as he himself is to the Father. Does that make sense? He can only lift us as high as he lives. So if he's not eternally generated from the Father, if he doesn't share the same essence as the Father, if it's not true what Jesus said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, then he could never save us. If the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father, then he could never bring us into communion with 
He can only bring us into subordination under the Father. And what God said of Abraham, Abraham was my friend. It would never be true of us. In fact, it wouldn't be true of Abraham. If the son is less than the father in any way, he could never, ever bring us into the father's heart. This is what it means in John when he writes, out of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace already given. This is what it means in John when it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent. Sound familiar? Not born of human decision. Sound familiar? Or a husband's will. Sound familiar? But born of God. The son is eternally generous. And when he saves us, do you know what he does in us? He makes us become from the Father. He makes us generate from the Father. Not eternally, because we don't. There was a time when we were not. We're different than him. But he became one of us so that we could become as he is. You see it? That's why this matters. Your, Christ, your Christianity is only as good as your Christology. This means that we can truly know God. We can truly commune with God. We can truly be with God. And his grace is enough to save. Now, some of you have been shortchanged. Some of you have never been taught this. And I'm sorry that's the case. Some of you have been taught that the Son is subordinate to the Father and has been for eternity. That the Son is less than the Father. And I don't say this uh, this kind of way often, but I want to say this as explicitly as I can. If you have been taught that the Son is subordinate to the Father, you have been taught wrong. The Son is one with the Father. Begotten before all ages, God from God, life from life, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Now, this is the gospel. The gospel is that the real Jesus, the only begotten, the one and only Son of the Father, he is enough to bring you to God. And in him, we don't just get close. We go all the way into the Father's heart. So, believe in Jesus. Believe in the Son. And let him bring you to the Father's heart. And there at the Father's heart, because of Jesus, the Son says, you too are my son and my daughter. He puts us in the fold of his heart. And that's what I've been all eternity. Do you want to know God? Do you want to commune with God? Look to Jesus. The God who became human. So that human beings can live with God without hindrance all eternity.